For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Many. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We're finishing the Apostles' Creed today. We've been going through a series on the Apostles' Creed all summer long. Uh, The summer tends to be a time where people pop in and pop out of church. They travel a lot during the summer, so we wanted to have a a sermon series that you could just hear one week of and, and be encouraged by. So we've been going through the basic beliefs of what we are as the church. What does the church believe? And this is a creed that's almost 2,000 years old. The church has been reciting it together for almost that entire time. And so as the church has been doing for almost two millennia now, if you would mind standing up, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together um, as we continue and, and finish out this series. So uh, say these words with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated on the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This week, with the Apostles' Creed, we're, we're looking at these last two lines. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We're talking about heaven and the afterlife and everything that goes with that. Our secular society that we live in wants us to believe and believes that we believe in a primitive superstition. That this idea of heaven is just a primitive superstition, or as Karl Marx puts it, an opiate for the people. They see our belief in heaven as pie-in-the-sky fantasy that's distracting us from the troubles of each and every day. That's why you see these battles happen on Twitter, where something, someone might say, pray for Boston, and then they say, don't, someone else will respond, don't pray, do something. And it's like, well, why do we have to argue about this, guys? Can we not believe both? While they might say that our belief in heaven is a primitive superstition, our longings for heaven are painted all over modern society. If you just look at something as volatile and terrible as politics, uh, go with me for just a minute. Both the right and the left have a preferred vision for the future. They've got a vision for utopia. One might say it's through government intervention that we get closer to this end goal of a utopian society. And others say it might be free market 
that gets us closer to this goal of utopian society. But both, I'm not actually critiquing their politics or their policies. I'm just trying to say that both of them actually want the same thing. They both have this longing for a society that's perfected. They both have this longing, this pointing toward an end goal. You see, the longings of heaven are all over the place. It fills our art. It fills our music. If you go to the Museum of Fine Art and look, you see longings for heaven. You see longings. If you listen to the radio, you hear longings for the good life, longings for heaven. As a, as a, my, one of my favorite bands is Radiohead, and uh, there's a, a line that Tom York says, I, I want a perfect body, I want a perfect soul. Well, I've never heard a, a better description of what it looks like to long for heaven. And I can't actually quote the next line because then I would get fired. Um, but I, uh, I, I just, that's how our society is. Completely fitting for the creed to end with a statement about eternal life. Church family, our belief in the resurrection is not this pie-in-the-sky fantasy meant to just uh, be an opiate, be a drug to keep us in line. That is not what it is. Our hope in the resurrection reshapes, it reorients our present realities. Our hope and future resurrection, that we will live again, that we will be embodied, that we will feel again, that we will enjoy life everlasting. This is very, very practical. It is not merely a fairy tale that we tell ourselves. We're going to dive into this passage in 2 Corinthians. And the reason why I chose this passage to end things with is because Paul gets, there, there are better passages in the Bible describing the resurrection life. But in this passage, what Paul does is he just applies it so very well. He says, here is why this is practical for you each and every day. Here's why this is helpful for us. He gives us these practical ways that it shapes what we are. You know, many Christians, most Christians believe in heaven, but it doesn't shape how they live. And heaven can feel so impractical to us. And it can even be like a forgotten doctrine that we don't even think about, especially as young people. And we don't think about heaven hardly at all. And when we do, it oftentimes feels overly sentimental. But today, I want to unpack this passage to help you see how it's very, very practical to our each and every day lives. And so, just two points. There, there's actually an infinite number of ways that you can apply this doctrine of heaven and doctrine of Everla, the, the, uh, the everlasting life. But today, I'm just going to look at two ways to practically apply this. And the first way is that our present, um, our future resurrection reorients our self-reliance. And the second way is that our future resurrection reorients our view of our bodies. So first, our future resurrection reorients our self-reliance. This this passage in in 2 Corinthians, some things that you need to know about Corinth is Corinth is a very secular city. It is, uh, as, as my friend Claude, who used to pastor here with me, uh, used to put it, he would say that Cor- Corinth made Vegas look like a monastery. 
Like this place is rough around the edges. It's a crazy place to live in. So these people are living in a highly secular society, and Paul is trying to encourage them as they suffer as Christians. And he's trying to say, hey, you're not alone in your suffering. I also have suffered. In fact, you really wouldn't even believe the things that I've suffered. That's why he says in verse 8, he starts off, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, Asia is, is a different place than what we think of when we think of Asia. Think more the modern-day country of Turkey when he uh, speaks of Asia. And we actually don't know exactly the afflictions that he experienced in Asia. He doesn't specify what it was that he was experiencing. But later on in this book of 2 Corinthians, Paul goes through a list of different things that he has experienced that were considered afflictions. Paul gives us this list of survival uh, situations that would make Bear Grylls envious. He describes himself as having experienced imprisonments, countless beatings, flogging, stoning, shipwreck. I think three shipwrecks. That's That's kind of intense. Drifting at sea for a night and a day. Robbers, angry mobs coming at him, hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure. Paul has been through it. He's had quite the afflictions. And then I love the way he describes it because it is so emotionally raw. Because he describes it in verse 8 as, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever been there? I doubt that very many of us actually have been to quite that level of despair and burden. Have you ever felt like, though, that more was being asked of you than what you could possibly handle? Most of us have been pushed at some point to a breaking point. And then sometimes we're to that breaking point where we don't feel like we can handle any more. We get a little bit more on us, like insult to injury that we experience. Maybe you didn't experience the same level of affliction as Paul, but you've been in a situation where you've just asked yourself, why? Why? Haven't I been through enough? Why? Why am I going through more? Many of us, in fact, I would say all of us, have had that experience. Why am I pushed this far? And so what Paul does is he says, I could look at these problems through my own viewpoint. But what I'm actually going to do, and this is just such a helpful tool, is I'm going to step into the eyes of God and see how God is viewing my afflictions. I'm going to give it that interpretive lens to see what he's trying to do here. And as Paul steps away from his afflictions and he looks at it from the perspective of Paul, he gives us an interpretation for why he's experienced so much, why he's been so utterly burdened beyond belief. And this is what he said, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. (laughs) 
He was driven to the point to where he thought he had experienced the death penalty. And why? So that he would not rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. You see, Paul knows that God is after his self-reliance. And here's a truth that's just true for all of us. But it goes like this. Capable people are self-reliant people. Are you a capable person? My bet is that you would answer that question, yes. I am a capable person. I can get things done. I have an ability when assigned a task to put my head down and to complete that task. I don't actually need very much help in life. I've gotten to where I am because I am a capable person. Most of us can resonate with that. Paul himself was a very capable person. He was well-educated. He was a Pharisee, which means that he was a very moral person. He had his life put together. He's an apostle. He's the most prolific author of the New Testament. He's writing letter after letter, helping churches. Paul is honestly the man. He walks into a city, and you either love him or you hate him. He walks into a city, and he starts churches. And he raises up leaders, and he hands it over. And he's doing this over and over and over again. He is a very capable and talented man. But he's a man who loves the Lord who's met Jesus. And for a man who is so prolific at at writing books and who communicates with God so clearly and who's depending upon God so much, he says that even he, the author of 13 New Testament books, depending on what you think about Hebrews, even he was driven to the point of feeling like he got the sentence of death So that, what? So he would stop relying on himself and rely on God. Friends, if it took Paul that much affliction to be driven to that point that his self-reliance would be killed, what will it take you? What will it take you? Are you a capable person like Paul? Are you good at your job? Are you good at problem solving? Friends, if you're highly capable and you live in a Western society where you have money, where you have the ability to have security, where you have some modern comforts, how do you know that you you are relying upon God and not upon yourself? If Paul was driven to the point of death so that he would rely upon God, what's it going to take for you? Personally, I've never experienced the same kind of suffering that Paul talks about here and the level of affliction. But I can tell you about the last time I felt like the Lord stripped away my own self-reliance so that I would rely on Him. It was just a few weeks ago. Several weeks ago, uh, the church graciously uh, offered me a five-week sabbatical. I've been in full-time ministry for 16 years. I've never taken that much time off in my entire life been in Boston for over nine years now, and uh, so it was a gracious gift that the Lord gave me. My family and I was able to, were able to do a little bit of traveling. It was a joyous time. But before that went, this is kind of how I'm wired. I wanted to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. I made this like 12-page document that had every, like, if this happens, do this. This person's in charge of this. This happens here. This happens here. And honestly, what I kind of was tempted to do and what I actually did attempt to do was 
complete five weeks of work before I left so that I didn't have to worry about anything while I was gone. And I work for a church. I tell people you can depend upon God. Don't be self-reliant. But here I am not even trusting God to lead his own church while I'm gone on vacation. And it really drove me to the point of, of anxiety beyond what I experienced normally. My, I started having tr- uh, stomach issues because my anxiety had just gotten so far out of control. You see, I was, I've, and, and just to let you in a little bit more, I was raised to be very self-reliant. I'm an only child. My father walked out on my family when I was five years old. I never got a whole lot of attention. I was loved. But from a very young age, I remember as a second grader, my parents saying, you're not going to, and my mom saying, you're not going to college unless you get scholarships. So I started working towards scholarships. I was raised to be a very self-reliant person, and that served me well in life in many ways until it comes to this aspect of, can I trust anyone else? Can I depend upon God? What happens when the temperature gets turned up so far in my life to where I feel like I've received something close to the death sentence? What happens when I actually can't trust myself completely, where I have to trust someone else to do something? Does that make you anxious to trust someone else with any aspect of your life? Friends, trust is hard, is it not? If you're not in control, you have to have trust. And what Paul is saying is that all of that was to drive him to this place where he would be reliant upon God and not himself. Friends, what a joy it is. What a joy it is to know that there is somebody that you can trust. That there is somebody who's actually more capable than you are In fact, who's capable of more than you could dream of? Who's capable of more than you can imagine? Friends, you don't have to be self-reliant. I don't have to be self-reliant because I have a Father in heaven who cares for me deeply and who loves me completely. He actually wants better for me than my own plans for myself. And I love how Paul says it. The way that Paul says it is, is very, very, very intentional. Because he says, we went through all of this so that we would not rely on ourselves but on God. But do not miss what he says next. Do not miss what Paul says next. Because this is, because he doesn't say, we went through all this so we rely on ourselves, so we would not rely on ourselves but on God who has a magnificent and amazing plan for our lives. He does not say, we went through all of this so that we would not rely upon ourselves but on God who is waiting to give us something better. No, Paul says, we went through all this so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, his hope wasn't that things were going to necessarily get better. His hope was in this eternal promise that this life is temporary and that he will be risen from the dead. That God will raise him back up. Those other things that I just mentioned, they're true, but they're not the ultimate goal. God does have a plan for your life. God does want better than what you want for for yourself. God wants better for you. 
But your ultimate hope can't be in those things. Your ultimate hope is in the fact that this life is not all that there is. You will be risen to new life and have a resurrected body and live life everlasting. It's the promise of being brought back to life that fueled Paul. The resurrection was very practical for him. Because Paul knows that even if this life ends badly, his God raises the dead. It's not the end of the story. Friends, even if I walked outside today and got hit by the bus, that's not the end of the story. If I received a terminal cancer diagnosis tomorrow, that would not be the end of the story. Sad, yes, but not the end of the story because our God raises the dead. You see, death is no longer a villain for me. Death is no longer something that has control over me. It's the greatest fear. If you look at all the phobias, ultimately they culminate in, I'm going to die. That's why I'm afraid. But if death is no longer a villain, if death is no longer a threat, because God raises the dead, then we can trust God in everything. I don't have to be self-reliant anymore. If I can trust God to raise me from the dead, I can trust him in the small things today and tomorrow. If I can trust God to raise me from the dead, I can trust him in the small things today and tomorrow. So church, how are you relying on yourself? With what do you trust to no one, not even God? Is it time to hand those things over? Second way that this is practical for us today is that our, our future resurrection reorients our view of our bodies. Very rarely in the scripture is heaven really described. It's a mysterious place. It's mentioned often, but not described in detail often. But one of the things that we know that heaven contains is the resurrection of the body. The Bible talks about that fairly often. And it runs so counterintuitive and contrary to what we believe about heaven. Because usually what we think about with heaven is a couple of spirits bopping around on clouds. With maybe some angels, some, some chubby angel playing the, the harp over in the corner, something like that. But this is not the vision that the Bible gives us for heaven. Heaven is this real place that can be touched and enjoyed where we will have real bodies. In fact, it'll be much more like earth than our vision of heaven bopping around in the clouds. Paul's hope wasn't that he would die and go to the clouds, go to heaven in that way. But his ultimate hope, the story of the scripture, is in the resurrected body. That's so different than what we normally think about as Christians. You see, heaven is not just this place that we go to when we die. It is that, but it's more than that. Because the story of the Bible isn't just about this temporary place where we go when we die. But it's about the reunification of heaven and earth. And how Jesus is going to one day come back and bring heaven to earth. And reestablish his kingdom throughout all of the world. It's about the Garden of Eden expanding to fill every inch of earth. The city of God coming down from the sky. The glory of God reigning supreme. You know, the heaven is not about just living forever. If that was the case, you could just as easily call it hell because hell goes forever as well. 
Demons live forever, many of them, I guess. I don't, I mean, the scripture doesn't say much about that. But the fact of heaven, what makes it so good is that God is there. That God is there and his glory fills the earth. And so heaven is this place where we have new bodies. And we really, if we have a body, that means that we touch and we smell and we taste. And it's more real than real life. More real than anything that we've experienced before. What about these new bodies? How does that change the way we view our body today? To know that one day we're going to be embodied in heaven. Well, I think on the one hand, we have to realize that our bodies are important today and that we have to take care of them. Because your body is not just the shell of you. A lot of times it's taught that your body's just your shell and then your spirit will go on. Well, no, the scripture doesn't say that because the scripture says that we'll be risen to new life, that we'll have bodies through life everlasting. And so your, your body is not just your shell. Your body is part of you. And so you have to take care of it. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6 that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And just because our bodies are somewhat temporary, we get new ones, it doesn't mean that we should ram it into a wall like a rental car. Okay? You don't treat your body like a rental car. It's more like your first car when you know you're going to be getting another one that's better in the future. But at the same time, because these bodies are temporary, we don't worship them. And this is so much of a temptation for our society. The worship of body. The worship of this temporary body. It happens in in a lot of different shapes and forms. For a lot of us, we feel like if we could just fix our bodies, fix our ailments, get a perfect body, as Tom York says, then we would be happy. That that would fix all of our problems. I have bad news and good news. I have bad news. You, You can't fix your body. It's going to fall apart. Okay, This thing is slowly falling apart. And with every day that you try to fix your body, your body's actually getting older and, and wearing out. It's, it's going to fall apart. But at the same time, I have good news. And it's going to sound like bad news, but there's actually something way more bad wrong with you. There's something way more wrong with you, and it's the fact that you're a sinner. And so by fixing your health issues isn't going to fix all of your issues in life if you aren't handling your heart issues. Oftentimes, our health issues reveal our heart issues. Body worship comes with its own salvation story, though. How many times have you seen an advertisement that says, I was lonely and fat, and then I joined this gym, and now I'm skinny and have friends. And I'm happy. That is a salvation story. That's, that is mimicking, mirroring what we have in Christ, that Once we were lost and now we are found. And it's playing off of that emotional energy. It's a powerful story to tell you this is where you find eternal life. But the scripture teaches us a better place to find eternal life. A better place to find the life everlasting. And church, I know that many of us, 
in this room are struggling with body image issues. It's a hard issue. I just want to encourage you. I just want to take a moment to encourage you that while I'm saying your body is important, it's not all there is to you. You are more than your body. And you're valued for more than your body. And just like Paul, I want you to step back and look at you from God's point of view and let you know that you were made in his image and that he cares for you as you. And so, yes, take care of this vehicle he's given you, but don't worship it. View it as he views it. I love the way that C.S. Lewis talks about heaven and our over-obsession with health because he really kind of helps us think through what we focus on and how to focus on it. It's a really famous C.S. Lewis quote. He says this, Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Let me say that first line again, then I'm going to read more of this quote. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining there is something wrong with you. You are only likely to get health provided you want, uh, provided you want other things more, food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization along as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. If you want the good life today, you have to focus on the good life tomorrow. Aim at earth, and you will never get heaven. Aim at heaven, and you get both. Friends, our bodies are falling apart. And the over 30 crowd says, I like slept weird and my shoulder hurt for two weeks. All right. I have to roll on a lacrosse ball on my hip just so I can squat down and play with my children. Our bodies are falling apart. But when we're resurrected, we'll have new bodies that aren't falling apart. The Bible describes it like our bodies today are like a seed. And our bodies then will be like a tree. A seed and a tree, they're made of the same substance. But one is so much different than the other. And so what you have today is just a seed. And one day you'll, you'll be able to enjoy the tree that he gives you. Philippians 3 puts it this, like this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So if there's an image of what it'll look like to be resurrected, it's the resurrected Jesus. I want to close today with with a quote from J.I. Packer, who um, at the end of his life, J.I. Packer pretty much made a living on like reviewing books and writing forwards and, and reviews. Like that's like he basically reviewed every book from like 1955 until 2010. I mean, every Christian book's like you got to send it to J.I. Packer and get and and get. He's like the Godfather. You got to get him to kiss the ring there. Um, J.I. Packer toward the end of his life, he's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, he lost his eyesight, 
And he was able to handle that so much better because of his, his complete reliance upon this doctrine of a new body one day. And he says it like this whenever, this is before he lost his eyesight, he wrote a little book on the Apostles' Creed, and he says it like this. This are his closing words to his book, and I just think they're a great way to close today. We cannot visualize heaven's life, and the wise man will try not. Instead, he will dwell on the doctrine of heaven, which is that the redeemed find all their heart's desire, joy with their Lord, joy with his people, and joy in the ending of all frustration and distress and the supply of wants. What was said to the child, if you want sweets and hamsters in heaven, they'll be there, was not an evasion, but a witness to the truth that in heaven no felt needs or longings go unsatisfied. What our wants will actually be, however, we hardly know, save that first and foremost, we shall want to be always with the Lord. Often now we say in moments of great enjoyment, I don't want this to ever stop, but it does. However, heaven will be different. May heaven's joys be yours and mine. May they be our longings, church. No matter what you're going through, rely on God who raises the dead and who we will dwell with in life everlasting because of what his son has done, how he took on our sin, paid the penalty for us. We get to enjoy this life everlasting, but we must place our trust and hope in him alone. And so today we're going to do something to remind ourselves of uh, what he's done for us, which is participate in a sacred meal. With this sacred meal, we'll be reminded that he was crushed for our iniquities that he died for our sins, that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. As we take this communion meal together, we're, being, we're declaring that he's coming again. We, all, this, we only do this, there will be no communion meals like this, weekly reminders in heaven, because we'll be enjoying the marriage feast of the Lamb. We will just be with him. This is like a little appetizer saying, hey, remember I'm coming. And we'll enjoy this meal together. Let's stand and respond to the Lord. Pray with me, church. God, we pray that as we come to you, that you will be filling our hearts and minds with the glory of God, that we will be set on heaven. Prepare us for this meal and remind us of what it represents. And in Christ's name we pray.